Welcome to our Human Experience Podcast. I'm Professor Catherine Colborn, the Head of the School of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Newcastle in Australia. Our school is dedicated to assisting our students to become critical thinkers, enabling them to appreciate and understand the world around them. Our researchers examine all facets of what it means to be human. We form partnerships with like-minded groups and researchers. This podcast series features thought-provoking conversations with our humanities and social science academics who are helping to improve the human experience through their research. In 2020, we will be talking with researchers about language and culture, youth identity and the economy, the experiences of older gender minorities, public health policy and the history of domestic service and much more. Thanks for joining us. Galbraith and today we are talking to Dr David Betts, a lecturer in the Social Work Program in the School of Humanities and Social Science. Thanks for coming and talking to us today, David. Thank you for having me. Your research focuses on the lived experiences of older sexual and gender minorities. And as humans, we all know that having that human connection is really important, and especially as we age. So I wanted to really talk to you today about what you've discovered through your research about the unique challenges that um, these older sexual and gender minorities face. Yes, of course. Well, historically, we know that sexual and gender diversity has not been treated well in our society. Um, and that historical legacy has also influenced our contemporary experiences and the contemporary realities of older individuals. Um, so for me, I'm really interested in looking at the experiences of people who are classified as older adults. So that can typically be anyone of um, the ages 55 and above, with most of my participants falling into that 60 to 85 range. And what I found from looking at the unique experiences of older sexual and gender minorities is that they have different experiences of stigma and discrimination when compared to, say, older heterosexual individuals, but also when compared to younger individuals of the community as well. And these forms of stigma and discrimination can come from friends, family, it can occur in a lot of public spaces as well, but it also comes through more formal avenues of discrimination and stigma, including politicians, uh, media personalities, institutions, as well as services like doctors, hospitals, and social workers as well. So for me, this I was interested in this because this higher chance of exposure to discrimination can have quite a diverse and wide range of impacts on the well-being of older sexual and gender minorities. Um, quite commonly, we see higher rates of mental health discrepancies, uh, psychological stress, depression, anxiety, substance abuse. But interestingly, I'm very um, focused on the social perspective as well, on the social element of this. And what we found is that uh, older sexual and gender minorities are less likely to be able to, say, rely on a biological family or what is often described as the um, family of origin. Uh, they're less likely to have children of their own to rely on as their age. And they're potentially going to have a disconnect between their wider family structures and family connections. Now, for me, as a social worker, what this means is that older adults of a community, older sexual and gender minorities, might have to rely on a family of choice. So friends, uh, connections in the community, and they might have to do so for a variety of reasons, such as um, increased health discrepancies, um, increased financial insecurities, as well as to rely on um, informal avenues of medical and aged care support. Mm -hmm. So I was going to ask you actually about... Um, 
their sense of identity as they age, like if you're an older person and you're faced with going into um, aged care or something like that, does that pose certain challenges if you're one of these sexual and gender minorities? Oh, absolutely. Um, so member, many members of the uh, cohort that I do research with are very fearful of aged care services and aged care institutions. Now, this fear comes from a variety of different reasons. It partly comes from historical experiences. So that might mean uh, they've had negative experiences with doctors, nurses, or any other sort of form of um, institutional health facilities. But it's also this concern that if they have to go into aged care services and facilities, they might have to hide their sexual or gender identity, have to re-enter the closet, if, as it were. Um, and part of this concern comes from the fact that they've seen their friends do this. Um, many of the people I've talked to in my research have friends and connections who've gone into aged care facilities and they've seen that part of their identity just shrink and disappear. So there's this concern that they'll both be treated negatively but also lose an aspect of their identity. So there's that double jeopardy, if there were. Mm, so it sounds like um, there is certain challenges that this group definitely has to face that uh, as they age, they crop up more and more. Oh, absolutely. And this also is compounded by the fact that previous research has shown that many healthcare services aren't adequately equipped to actually support older sexual and gender minorities, either in terms of their specific needs or just in terms of recognising and supporting their diversity. Mm. How did you get into this field? Oh, um, well, I guess it started when I was back in New Zealand. Um, I was working as a clinical social worker in health settings. Um, so I was locoming at a few hospitals in Christchurch where I was going from ward to ward, uh, supporting patients through a variety of life care transitions. And because a lot of healthcare services focuses on older adults, I found myself working with this cohort quite a bit. And what I saw was that many people generally were coming into the hospital, they were getting their medical needs and the healthcare needs sorted, but they were being discharged with a lack of social support. Now, what we tried to do as social workers was highlight forms of connection and resources they had in the community. So that was primarily uh, friends, family, children, um, all of the stereotypical connections we associated with older adults. However, when these supports weren't necessarily available, we saw a much higher rate of bounce back where patients would go into the community, they'd go into their own home, and then because they weren't able to support themselves, their healthcare deteriorated and they'd come back into hospital. Now, this in itself is broadly a concern for gerontology anyway, supporting older adults in the community, but what I found for both my clinical practice and my general research area was that this was exacerbated for sexual and gender minorities. They were less likely to be able to rely on these biological forms of support, but also clinical services, and social workers just as guilty of this as any other type of um, service, tend to just to rely on these biological connections as a primary avenue of support. So older sexual and gender minorities were more likely to bounce back into the healthcare services. So I looked at this area and I thought, we need to address this. We need to um, assess social knowledge, we need to assess social skills, and we need to bring that information into our practice. Now, what I found when I started to explore this a little bit more, and I was just personally quite curious, was that there wasn't really any research out there. Uh, the majority of research tended to focus on younger adults rather than older adults of the community. And what research there was, was done primarily um, overseas in international contexts and was often survey-based. It was um, quantitative. It was numbers and surveys. None of us lived experience. So there was a gap there that I wanted to address. I wanted to explore 
our social connections and social support could help build, develop and sustain the well-being of older members of the LGBT community. Mm. And did that lead on to you doing your PhD, I believe, in New Zealand and it was a a study that looked at um, a group of older adults and you asked them about their forms of social connection? Yes, yeah, it had a direct connection for me beginning my PhD study, which was conducted in New Zealand uh, between 2015 and 2018. Uh, So this was a very, very broad topic. I was quite interested in exploring social connections. And to do that, I used the framing device and concept of social capital. Mm -hmm. So I was broadly interested in how social capital connections and resources could support the well-being of older members of a community who are specifically not currently relying on institutional services. Uh, So this was such a broad topic and it resulted in a variety of different themes and findings that have been applicable to social work practice and social work research moving forward. Mm. Can you tell me about some of those outcomes that you discovered? Oh, yeah, okay. Um, So one of the big ones that really emerged was a discussion and reflection on the impact of legislative change. Mm -hmm. So older sexual and gender minorities are in a unique position to reflect, comment, and I think critique uh, legislation and legislative developments in history. Um, In New Zealand specifically, my participants were able to look at the decriminalization of homosexuality, uh, the implementation of anti-discrimination laws that explicitly focused on sexuality and gender, as well as the development of civil unions and marriage equality. And the participants were able to reflect on the impact and the lack of impact that this had on their well-being, their security, and their uh, sense of social connections um, in the community. And one of the things that uh, really came through in this finding was the fact that, yes, legislative developments had a strong impact on feelings of safety and security, but they had a much slower impact in forms of social stigma and discrimination. And while that might be expected in terms of general... um, in terms of the general public, in terms of general perceptions around sexual and gender diversity. One thing I found really interesting but also quite shocking as a social worker myself was the fact that social services were still perpetuating these forms of stigma and discrimination despite this legislative development. So social workers, nurses, doctors were all still perpetuating views of sexual and gender diversity that limited, constrained and diminished the well-being of this cohort. So I really wanted to critique the fact that, yes, legislative development is great, but it's only one step of many more steps we need to actively engage in as professionals and as curious members of the public. So even though it's been legislated and it's the law, it doesn't automatically make people follow the letter to the law, does it? I mean, we still have cases where people, uh, public uh, figures are outspoken and they might, um, you know, have bigoted views and things like that or, or, you know, the religious discrimination bill, things Mm. like that coming up. What's your view on on that? Oh, in terms of religious discrimination bill, that really just highlights that point I was trying to make, the fact that legislative developments are good but further work is always going to be needed. Um, So your comment about prominent figures, uh, politicians, uh, sports stars. When I was conducting my thesis, uh, I was able to comment on contemporary events that were happening. So I was able to comment on contemporary New Zealand politicians, including the New Zealand Prime Minister at the time, all who made very prominent and outspoken either jokes, dismissive comments, or frankly, offensive remarks. Um, In terms of an Australian context, we can also see that in terms of Israel Folau, high-profile public figures making offensive, discriminatory and hateful comments about the community. So even if it is this form of protection, it doesn't mean that these forms of stigma aren't being actively perpetuated. 
And of course, interestingly, if we look at Australia right now, the religious discrimination bill continues this debate and continues this fight that while there may be forms of anti-discrimination protection in Australia, that doesn't mean the fight is necessarily won or it doesn't necessarily mean that our hard-fought-for rights are going to be kept secure. Mm -hmm. And the religious discrimination bill actually threatens to undermine that by creating extra avenues for discrimination for people to use faith and faith-based reasons to discriminate against sexual and gender diversity. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a little bit scary what's, um, yes. what's happening out there. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask about your new new research focus this year I believe it's it's turning a little bit to uh, to a new, a new area can you tell me about that yes yeah well I'm involved in two projects this year that I'm really excited about um, and they aim to address um, some gaps in my own PhD research but also to expand that into an Australian context as well so the first one I want to explore is the fact that the majority of research around sexual and gender diversity regardless of the age bracket tends to focus on gay men and lesbian women um, at the expense of other identities and other experiences. So a lot of the experiences of bisexual individuals, transgender individuals, intersex and gender fluid individuals is often lumped under this banner of LGBT that re and realistically only really represents the G and the L. So I want to address some of that gap by looking more explicitly at the experiences of older gender diverse individuals. Mm -hmm. So I want to be doing a research project looking at how social work services and social work professionals engage with this cohort, um, primarily so that I can bring those findings into the courses that I teach now to develop a workshop to help inform social work students moving forward, but also to help highlight this, um, the experiences of an often invisible cohort within the broader category of sexual and gender diversity. Mm -hmm. I, I was going to mention that term that you use there, hidden and invisible part of society is what I'm, you quoted uh, in one of your papers that I referenced. And um, uh, what does that mean to you? Is this whole cohort hidden and invisible, do you think? I think... It is, and it is for two reasons. One is the fact that primarily um, our society tends to privilege their voices and experiences of heterosexual and cisgender individuals. So people with opposite sex attraction and people whose gender identity matches the gender they were assigned at birth. Um, as a result of this privileging, the experiences of diverse identities is often ignored, not acknowledged, or seen as not important to consider. Um, so that creates an aspect of an invisible identity. But it's also, I think, reflected in the work that we do and the research that we do. And I'm saying this as a social work researcher and a social work practitioner. When we look at communities, we tend to ignore some smaller groups, um, either because it's not going to be as beneficial to our practice or because they might be harder to access. Uh, now, whether or not this is deliberate, it contributes to the fact that certain groups may or may not be considered hidden and invisible. Um, a further complicating factor is the fact that many minority groups may not actually want to engage with formal research, formal services, or formal social work practitioners to actually engage in research because of previous discriminatory experiences. So that creates a potential uh, cohort that might be uh, not acknowledged, under-addressed, or harder to access for researchers. Um, so that's one area that I'm trying to really shine a light on in my research. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, you also have some other work 
planned for this year, I believe, in terms of um, a team-based project that you were talking about before? Yes, um, I'm part of a project that's looking at institutional interventions in queer lives, where we're exploring historical paradigms to contemporary paradigms. So we're looking at historical experiences primarily in the context of looking at prisons that have been uh, created to primarily cater and constrain gay men. We've been looking at the development of the medical perception or medicalization of sexual diversity. And we're going to start more examining the contemporary reality as a result of these historical experiences. So we're interested in exploring how this paradigm exists, not just as something right now impacting individuals of a community, but it is embedded in and comes from this historical experience and this historical development. Uh, so we're hoping to create resources here that can tell historical stories, contemporary stories, but also be a bit more forward-focused as well. And as part of that forward-focused perspective, we want to look at the religious discrimination bill. We want to look at potential threats to the safety and security of a community. And we want to try and highlight the fact that while advancements have been really successful, constant vigilance is mm. needed. We're not quite there yet, are we? We still need to be vigilant and, and monitor. It's an ongoing situation. Absolutely. And while it's really important to celebrate the victories that we've won as a community um, and the victories we've won internationally as well, there's a risk there that if we don't maintain that vigilance, like you said, that apathy is going to set in, that we're going to lose these rights, that other perspectives, um, negative, hateful and hurtful perspectives will creep in and do their best to actually diminish and take back these rights. Mm. Is, is there some professional development you're doing with that as well so that what you're um, researching there can be broadcast out to the broader public? Absolutely. Uh, one thing I love about doing research that is social work based is the fact that it's designed to inform current practice and current policy. I don't want the material that we find just to be presented to academics or just to be used abstractly. I want it to actually inform social workers on the ground right now. So at the end of the year, we are hoping to organise a symposium based around this research where we're going to be talking about our findings and how they can be used to inform social work practice. I'm hoping to be able to talk about the workshops that I'm running with students so that other educators can take on these principles. And I'm also hoping to invite organisations in the community to talk about the work they're doing to support sexual and gender diversity. And I think that's a great opportunity for professionals and practitioners to get this ongoing professional development and experience and hopefully take some of these research findings out into the community, out into their work, and hopefully make a difference in the lives of the people they're working with. It sounds like a fantastic event and, um, you know, it sounds like there's a lot happening in this space and it's been really interesting to, to talk to you today, David, so thank you very much for coming and joining us. No worries, thank you. Thank you.